You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. open to John 18. Let's bow together before we begin. Our Father, we are thankful again to You for Your Word. It is that that we gather around each and every Lord's Day to hear from You in the pages of Scripture. We thank You that You have given us Your Word, that You have made it clear, that You have given us an ability by Your grace and by Your indwelling Spirit to understand Your Word. So we pray now that You would open our eyes and our hearts to understand it, to see it, that we may obey it. We love You and we thank You for the clear revelation of truth and what has happened to Christ on our behalf. We pray that You would use our understanding of the text to fill our hearts with wonder, love, and praise for Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't know what we're going to do next week uh, yet. It's going to be something Christmassy and something from Scripture, I promise you that. I don't have anything else that I can do. I'm kind of a one-trick pony in terms of that. But we're, I'm open to suggestions. If anybody has something you would like to hear next Sunday, uh, something Christmassy. But today we're going to be looking at the second half of the trial of the Lord Jesus Christ before Annas here in John chapter 18. We looked last week at verses 12 through 18, verses 12 through 18, and we started with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. We get to verse 18, we have Jesus at the courtyard of the high priest, probably in the residence or the courtyard attached to the residence of the high priest. In verse 18, we see Jesus in the location of his arrest. And, or 12, we see Jesus in the location of his arrest. And in verse 18, the location of his first trial. And so that sort of brings us up to verse 19. And we give you a couple of reminders in case you were not here last week of what we covered. Because this is part two. It is the, the second part of this first trial. So just a couple things to remember. First, we need to remember that we are looking at the first of five trials that Jesus faced that evening of his arrest. So this is Thursday night probably beginning around five around midnight and ending somewhere between midnight and 5 a.m. This is the first of five trials. Now, this is this trial, the first one, only John records this. Remember, this is not recorded in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. This is only recorded in the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus on the more official trial, which is to follow this, that John does not mention, or sorry, that John does not give us details regarding, but he does mention it in verse 24. Second, there are two key players here, both of whom are referred to as the high priest, Annas and Caiaphas. Annas being the father-in-law of Caiaphas, Caiaphas being the high priest that year, though like our, our office of modern-day president of the United States, once you held the office for a period of time, you held the title for the rest of your life. And that is why John can refer to both Annas and Caiaphas as the high priest, without distinguishing between the two of them, though he notes in verse 12, or 13 it is, in verse 13, that Caiaphas held the office. In verse 19, he refers to Annas as the high priest. And John is not confused and he's not contradicting himself. He is simply able to refer to both of these men as the high priest. Both of these men were power hungry. They were bloodthirsty. They were violent. They were greedy and covetous. Both of these men held tremendous sway over the nation of Israel, over their religious life, over their civil life, and over the people. And you remember back in chapter 9, um, the man who was born blind when Jesus healed him and the man went back and his parents saw him. And, of course, the Pharisees and the high priest and all of the council found out that Jesus had healed the man born blind. 
Do you remember what happened or the reaction of the man and his parents when they dragged his parents in to testify before the council? Do you remember their demeanor? They were terrified. Why? Because these men were were so opposed to Jesus and they would wrongly use their power in order to even excommunicate somebody who testified concerning Christ in any kind of a positive way. So the entire nation was in fear of Annas and of Caiaphas because these were very cruel, um, very greedy, very power-hungry um, individuals. Uh, horrible, horrible men. That's what you need to remember. Now, that brings us to verse 24. Jesus has been brought in, of course, in the courtyard. Remember that Peter is there. John is there. John is the other disciple who is known by the high priest. So Peter and John are in the courtyard, which means that Peter and John were eyewitnesses of part of, if not all, of the trial that is about to unfold before us. So verse 19 brings us to the questions of the high priest. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Now, without sounding that I'm disrespecting the intention or the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, I wish that there were more in that verse about what Annas was questioning Jesus, particularly regarding his disciples and his teaching. What was he getting at? Why was he interested in his disciples? Why was he asking him questions about his disciples? What type of questions was he asking Jesus concerning the disciples? It's interesting, John doesn't tell us that, but he doesn't just say that he was asking Jesus concerning his disciples and concerning his teaching. Now, some have seen that there's a, a significant order there, that the disciples are mentioned first and the teaching is mentioned second, emphasizing maybe that in this trial, what Annas was really focusing on was not so much the teaching, he wasn't really interested in that, whether what Jesus taught was necessarily true or false. That wouldn't have concerned him as much as, how many disciples do you have? Where are your disciples from? What have you been teaching your disciples in private? Who are your disciples? What are their beliefs? And maybe Annas is really driving at that. He's, he's getting at, who were these disciples and what was Jesus training them to do? Uh, somebody, one commentator that I read, suggested that Annas would, this is the type of thing that Annas would be concerned about. How many followers do you have? And this is, by the way, what worldly men are always concerned with. Not whether what you teach is true or not, but how many people do you have? How many disciples do you have following you? Where can I find them? Who are they? What are their names? Now, interestingly, we know that the high priest knew of one of Jesus' disciples, at least, right? Who was it? It was John. Remember, John was well known to the high priest and to his family. And John was there in the courtyard this night. But the high priest is probably asking about all the other disciples, including Peter, who had fled and were not there. And he wants to know probably their number, probably their beliefs, probably where they are at, where they were going, what his plans for them were. And so he is examining Jesus concerning his disciples and then second, concerning his teaching. He was asking Jesus concerning his teaching. What was it that he was teaching the disciples? And in Jesus' answer, he is going to get to the fact that what he had taught his disciples, he had taught openly. It was a matter of public record what he had taught his disciples. But Annas here, what he is doing is he is fishing. He is asking Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And remember that this is an informal trial. So all Annas is doing in this setting is fishing for something that he can use against Jesus in the trial that he knows is going to come later on before the council with Caiaphas. He is asking Jesus. He's trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself in these answers. And in asking them about his teaching, Ananias is not concerned, once again, whether his teaching was true or whether it was false. Because they did not reject Jesus' teaching because they thought it was false. You know why they rejected Jesus' teaching? Because they hated the light. And they hated him. They never got in public arguments with him over his doctrine, over the minutia of it. They didn't do that. 
They resisted it. They rejected it. They didn't like it. They would ask him questions. They would try and trip him up. But they never openly debated his teaching because they weren't interested in whether it was true or false. You could teach all kinds of heretical things in that day, and some of these men did. What they were really interested in was trying to get Jesus to say something that they could use, something about his doctrine, some statement, something that he taught that they could hang a charge of blasphemy on and use it to get a death sentence against him. This, they're not interested in objectivity, and all Annas is doing here is he's fishing, trying to get Jesus to incriminate himself. He's not interested in any kind of objectivity at all. This whole trial is a sham. It is a fraud. It is illegal from the beginning. The whole thing is fabricated. It is more rigged than a Chicago ballot box. There is no way that they are going to get any kind of semblance of decency or legitimacy in this trial whatsoever. They're not interested in his teaching. They're not interested in evidence. They're not interested in any true witnesses. All they're interested in doing was using the legal system of the nation of Israel to give a thin layer of thin veneer of legitimacy to their intention to murder Jesus. And that's what John reminded us of back in verse 14 when he said that Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Already, weeks prior to this, they had already determined that they were going to kill him. That was what they had decided going into this trial. They're not interested in objectivity. They're not interested in the truth. All they're interested in, all Annas is doing, is looking for something that they can use against him later on. They're trying to incriminate Jesus. And so this whole examination is really illegal. Verse 19 says they asked him about his disciples and about his teaching. And you know what's, what's coyly absent from this whole inquisition? There's no mention of his miracles. Now you would think, I would think, that his miracles and what he had done would be something worthy of discussion in this setting. I would think so. We know that Annas knew of the miracles that Jesus did. We know back in chapter 5 when Jesus healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda in the city of Jerusalem, that that was such a, such a notorious, such a notable miracle that Jesus actually stood before the leaders of the Jew in some sort of a formal or informal gathering and gave to them the divine son discourse that follows in chapter 5. So we know that Annas knew of the man who was born or who had been crippled that Jesus healed at the pool of Bethesda. We also know that Annas would have known about the man born blind in chapter 9. Because that man and his parents were called in to testify between, before these very same men. So we know that Annas knew about that miracle. And we know that Annas knew about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead because there were some men who were there and saw that miracle who did not believe, who went back and reported to these Jews, Annas and Caiaphas and the rest of the council, what Jesus had done. And they all met together and they discussed that and determined that they were going to kill Jesus. So we know that Annas knows about the man, the cripple, in chapter 5, the man born blind in chapter 9, and Lazarus in chapter 11. And he doesn't mention the miracles. doesn't discuss that. He doesn't say, you know, that Lazarus thing, I mean, that was, that was stunning. That was great. And, and man born blind, who could have done that? Why doesn't Annas mention the miracles? Why doesn't that come up at this trial? And by the way, it doesn't come up at the trial before Caiaphas, and the miracles don't come up at the trial before Pilate, the first one, and the miracles don't come up at the trial before Herod, and the miracles don't come up at the second trial before Pilate. It's never mentioned. They don't bring that in. Why is that? Because these men knew that the miracles were the evidence that he was who he claimed to be. They're not interested in the truth. They're not interested in calling in men who had been healed or delivered from demons or delivered from an illness or even raised from the dead in order to testify on his behalf. All they're interested in doing is getting just enough information that they can use to hang a charge of blasphemy on him. The whole thing was a fraud. And it's illegal. And verse 19 is evidence that it was illegal. The fact that Annas was searching and fishing for information upon which he could hang a charge of blasphemy on Jesus and get a death sentence, 
The fact that he was doing that in this context, in this way, is evidence that the whole thing was illegal. In fact, everything that had unfolded that night was contrary to the law of the Jews, which protected innocent man. It was illegal in the nation of Israel before the Sanhedrin to try to get somebody to incriminate themselves. We have a protection in our own legal system against that. And you know what it is. It's the Fifth Amendment. We cannot force somebody to give testimony that will incriminate themselves. They can give that testimony if they would like, but we cannot force them to do so. In the nation of Israel, it was an even, it were even stricter and more, and more vigorous defenses for innocent people. William Barclay, who is a, is a great historian, he's not so good with his theology, but he's good in history. William Barclay writes this, One curious feature of the legal procedure in the Sanhedrin was that the man involved was held to be absolutely innocent and indeed not even on trial until the evidence of the witnesses had been slated and confirmed. The argument about the case could only begin when the testimony of the witnesses was given and confirmed. That's the point of the conversation between Jesus and Annas in John 18, 19 to 21. Jesus in that incident was reminding Annas that he had no right to ask him anything until the evidence of witnesses had been taken and found to agree. So if it had unfolded according to Jewish law, here's how it would have went. The witnesses would have come to the Sanhedrin, more than one, two or three witnesses, and said, we saw or we heard this man say this. The Sanhedrin then had a responsibility to hear the testimony of the witnesses independent of each other, to confer together and examine their testimony one against the other to make sure that the witnesses agreed, to confirm that testimony and to enter it into evidence. Then they would go and arrest Jesus and bring him before them and then inform Jesus of what the charges against him were and then give him an opportunity to answer those charges in the presence of the men who were accusing him. Does that sound anything like what has unfolded this evening? You know why there are no witnesses present? They didn't have any witnesses. No witnesses had brought any evidence. No witnesses had offered any testimony. No charges have even been brought before Jesus. This whole thing, this whole trial is an illegal trial. And Annas knew it, and everybody watching it knew it, and Jesus knew it. And his answer, his answer actually highlights that fact to Annas. Now look at verse 20 and 21. This is Jesus' answer. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. Jesus was never at a loss for words. And in fact, every time we see him interacting with the Jewish leaders in the Gospel of John, Jesus is the one who always has the upper hand. It's hard to argue with somebody who knows your thoughts before you think them, who knows your heart, right? knows what argument you're going to give. It's difficult to win an argument like that. It was impossible for the Jewish leaders to win an argument against Jesus. And every word he spoke, it was always measured, it was always concise, it was always truthful, it was perfect, perfectly logical, perfectly legal, perfectly righteous. And these men always found themselves on the losing end of every argument. Whether it was in John 5 or John 6 or John 9 and John 10, the men always found themselves losing these these public exchanges between themselves and Jesus. And here it is again. In a very concise way, Jesus does three things with his answer. First, he defends his disciples. You notice that they ask him about his disciples and about his teaching. And what did Jesus answer regarding his teaching? doesn't mention anything about his disciples. Because here, he, even while he is bound and standing trial before Annas at this mock and very informal trial, even while he is doing that, he is protecting his disciples. And Jesus took all the emphasis and placed it upon himself in his answer. He talked about his teaching and those who heard him. Look at how many times he mentions I. And it's not because he's narcissistic in verses 19, uh, 20 and 21. 
I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues in the temple where all the Jews come together. I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. What is he doing? He doesn't just like talking about himself. He's drawing all the attention away from the disciples into himself and to his teaching. Even here, the Lord is defending his disciples and keeping the focus off of them. The second thing that his answer does is it denies any charge of any kind of subversive secrecy. You'll notice that he mentions how he openly taught. He taught in synagogues, went outside the city of Jerusalem, went inside the city of Jerusalem, he had taught in the temple. He always went, in every city that he went, he went out publicly to where the Jews gathered openly and where the Jews gathered publicly, and he would stand there and he would teach them. And these men knew this because many of the discourses that Jesus gave in John's Gospel are all given before crowds of unbelievers and some of them before these very men. They knew that they could walk into the temple on any given day and Jesus, if he was in Jerusalem, would be in that temple and he would be teaching the Jews publicly. The Divine Son Discourse in chapter 5, the Bread of Life Discourse in chapter 6, the Light of the World Discourse in chapter 8, the Good Shepherd Discourse in chapter 10, all of those were given publicly, largely to crowds of unbelievers. But Jesus says in verse 20, uh, yeah, in verse 20, I spoke nothing in secret. And by that, he's not saying that he never said anything to his disciples privately because we know that he did. In fact, we know that the very last discourse, all of chapter 14, 15, 16, 17, was all spoken just to the disciples in secret. So what is Jesus saying there? Leon Morris in his commentary writes this. What he means is that he did not have two kinds of teaching, a harmless one for the general public and a very different one for the secret revolutionaries. What he said to the disciples did not but unfold the implications of his words to the people at large. The essence of his teaching was public property. That's what Jesus is saying. I have not taught two things, one to the crowds and another thing to my disciples. And see, this this gets to why it is that Annas might have been quizzing him concerning his disciples and concerning his teaching. The essence of it may have been this. What were you teaching the disciples secretly that you were not teaching to everyone else openly? Jesus' answer here is that everything I taught to my disciples, I also taught to everybody at large. In other words, the the sum, the substance, the gist of his teaching, which he gave publicly, he unfolded privately to the disciples, yes. But there was no duplicity in his teaching. He wasn't teaching one thing before them and another thing before the disciples. He wasn't trying to gin up these little private revolutionaries, these little private rebels to lead a rebellion um, against the, the leadership. That's not what Jesus was doing. So he said it was public. Everything I did was public. He denied any kind of secrecy to his teaching. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, there was a warning from Moses. If your brother, your mother's son, or your son, or your daughter, or your wife, who you cherish, or your friend who is as your own soul, entice you secretly, saying, let us go and serve other gods. And in that instance, Moses said, you're not to, you're not to tolerate that. You're to call them out, you're to bring them out to bear testimony against them and kill them. So that that idolatry might perish from the nation of Israel. And it may be that that's what they're trying to hang on Jesus. Some sort of secret doctrine, some sort of secret teaching that he was only giving to a few. And Jesus denied that type of duplicity. And the third thing that his answer does, not just defend his disciples and deny that kind of duplicity, but the third thing that his his answer does is demonstrated the illegality of all of these proceedings. It was illegal. Look what he says in verse 21. Why do you question me? What is he getting at? You ought to be questioning whom? The witnesses. And when Jesus said that, it was an open rebuke to Annas. Why are you asking me these things? If you were following the law, you would already have witnesses here whose testimony you had heard, whose testimony you had confirmed, and whose testimony was already entered as evidence. Then you would bring me in here. Then you would issue a charge against me. 
Then I would be able to answer my accusers openly. If you followed the law, that's what it would look like. But why do you question me? You should be questioning witnesses. And when Jesus asked that question, why do you question me? He was pointing out for Annas and for everybody watching the illegality of these proceedings. Nothing here had unfolded according to the law. Nothing here had unfolded in any kind of a just or righteous way. And Jesus is just pointing that out. He, he does with that question, he strips the veneer of legality off of this. He strips this veneer of, of concern for the law off of all of these proceedings. He reveals the heart of Annas, the hypocrisy, the duplicity of the entire meeting, the entire sham trial. He reveals all of that. The hypocrisy of these men was that they were using the law while they them, the, the, using the law to try and get a condemnation against Jesus. Which law they were violating in trying to get a condemnation against Jesus. That's the hypocrisy of it. And Jesus just reveals this for them with this question. Why do you question me? Verse 21. Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. Crickets. Where are the witnesses? And the fact that there are no witnesses and that Annas doesn't ask these questions regarding his teaching of anybody else is evidence that everything here was illegal. Surely they could have found, out of all the people in Jerusalem for the Passover, who had heard Jesus even as far north as Capernaum and Galilee, around the, the Sea of Galilee, of all the people who had heard him in the temple for this entire week, certainly there was somebody, out of the thousands of people who had heard him teach publicly, thousands, certainly there was somebody who could testify. Certainly it should not be difficult to find even one witness. But was there one witness? There were zero witnesses. And so when he says, why do you question me? He's just pointing that out. You ought to be able to walk out of here. If, if, if what I have done is worthy of being arrested and put on trial, you ought to be able to walk out of here and throw a rock and hit somebody who could testify against me. But they couldn't. At this point, there were no witnesses. So look what happens in verse 22. Jesus has charged them with illegality. Verse 22. When he had said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus, saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? The word strike there is the word that was originally used when it, uh, in, in the oldest sources of striking somebody with the hand either opened or closed, like a fist or, or slapping them. It was later used also of striking somebody with a stick. And there's no indication in John's Gospel as to which one of those is meant, whether he struck Jesus with a stick or they struck him with his hand open or closed. We just know that this is the very first time that evening that Jesus was struck. And he is struck by an unnamed servant. And probably this servant who was standing by, maybe one of the officers who went out to the garden to arrest him, this servant who was standing by there saw that Annas was losing face, saw that Jesus had publicly shamed him and humiliated him graciously as it was. And by the way, there's nothing, there's nothing disrespectful or dishonoring in what Jesus had said. What was dishonoring was Annas' conduct. And all the righteous Son of God did was reveal to everybody there that the law was not being followed. All Jesus was doing was saying, if you're going to condemn me according to the law, Follow the law in the trial. They weren't going to do that. Why? Because they knew that they could never get a guilty verdict against him if they handled everything legally. They weren't interested in handling everything legally. They were interested in killing him. And Jesus revealed that. And it wasn't disrespectful for him to do it. It was righteous for him to do it, to do what he did, to demand that they follow the requirements of the law. And this servant probably saw that Annas had been shamed because his conduct was shameful. And he decided that he was going to shame Jesus for shaming Annas. And so he slapped Jesus, and said to him, is that the way you answer the high priest? You know what slapping a prisoner was who was uncondemned and uncharged and untried? That was an illegality. So here, here's what they do. Jesus has charged them 
with violating the law and being illegal in their procedure. And what do they do? They answer by violating the law and being illegal in the procedure. They slapped him and they struck him. It was illegal to strike a prisoner who had been not even been charged with a crime yet, had not even had witnesses brought forward yet. He had not had a chance to answer for himself yet. He had not even officially stood trial or been condemned. As far as the law was concerned, he was a completely innocent man. And so they struck him. And the very fact that they struck him just shows how corrupt this whole trial and this whole court proceeding was standing before Annas. J.C. Ryle in his commentary says this, Nothing is a surer index of the real condition of a nation than the conduct of its courts of justice and its just or unjust treatment of prisoners. That's a true statement. Nothing is a surer indication of the condition of a nation than how its courts conduct itself themselves. When your courts are lawless and your courts don't care what the law is and your courts don't care about what is written in the law and they themselves don't follow the law, your nation is toast. So J.C. Rouse saying, you have reached a point where you are corrupt to the very core when the law is not followed and the law is disregarded. Now, I will let you make your own observations and conclusions regarding that in our context. But this was a sure indication of just how corrupt the nation had become and just how corrupt their leadership had become that they would tolerate and even encourage and abide by striking this man who was uncondemned in their court in a public setting like this. It was corrupt to its very core. Notice Jesus' final answer, verse 23. If I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong, but rightly, why do you strike me? This is a brilliant response. Its logic is impeccable. I know it sounds almost pedantic saying that regarding Jesus, that his logic was good. His logic is impeccable. He's really caught them on the horns of a dilemma. And his argument is simply this. If what I have said is wrong, then bring forth the witnesses to testify of the wrong. If what I've said is false, you can prove in a court that what I said was false. Bring forward the witnesses, testify, and incriminate me. Present your case, present your witnesses, charge me with the wrongdoing. But the fact that they had no witnesses and had no charges and could, could issue no decree like that whatsoever proved that they could not prove that what he said was wrong. So he says, if what I've said is right, because this is, there are only two possibilities, either what he said was wrong or what he said was right, if what I've said is wrong, prove me wrong. And if what I have said is right, then I am a just and I am an innocent man. And this whole trial is a sham and a joke. And I've done nothing wrong. So then why do you strike me? Now, at this point, what does Annas do? He's caught on the horns of a dilemma that he himself has created. He can't let Jesus go. He doesn't want to do that, but he can't do it because if he lets Jesus go, then that is a tacit admission that the arrest was illegal, that this inquisition was illegal, that striking him was illegal, that the whole procedure was illegal. And he admits that. You can't really ask Jesus any more questions because to do so is illegal. Annas has no right to have him arrested, to ask him any questions without any witnesses and without any charges. He can't really charge Jesus because the witnesses have not been brought forward to testify and their testimony has not been confirmed. He can't strike or beat Jesus before him because that in itself is illegal. He can't issue a charge because the witnesses haven't been there. And he, he can't issue a condemnation because it's not even official trial. Annas has no, has no escape. There's nowhere he can go. There's nothing he can do. Except what he does in verse 24. In verse 24, it says, So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And I think at that, at that moment, Annas probably realized, you know what, if I continue down this road, I am going to, I'm going to undermine everything that we are trying to do. In his own pride, 
in wanting Jesus to appear before him first, while Caiaphas was gathering together the council for the official trial, in his own pride and in this whole proceeding, Annas has done a tremendous amount to harm their own case because everything that he has done so far is illegal. The best thing that Annas can do is to just walk away from it, which is what he does. And he sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, that brings us to the end of our text, but sadly for you, not the end of our time. So remember that after verse 24, there is another trial that Matthew, Mark and Luke mention that John only mentions, but doesn't give any details of. And in going through all the Gospel of John and trying to bring together the testimony of all four Gospels, I don't want to just skip over the trial that John doesn't doesn't give us details about. I want to look at what happened in that trial, but I don't want to leave for a whole leave John for a whole Sunday in order to do that. So I'm going to ask you to go over and we're going to close today by reading the account in the Gospel of Matthew of the next trial that Jesus faced that evening. And we're not going to take our time to go through it in detail as we have had as we've done for this trial. But I just want us to know what happened there. Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 57, is the account of that trial. And like I said, this is mentioned, this is the trial before Caiaphas. This would be the official trial. So Caiaphas is the official high priest. And he gathered together the council, which is all of the leading Jews, the Pharisees of the nation, the other priests. They would gather together for an official hearing. And keep in mind that this is in the middle of the night, completely unprecedented. But what they want to do is they want to get Jesus condemned and on the way to crucifixion before most people got up in the morning. That was the goal. So they're doing all of this under the cover of darkness. And this is the second trial. Now, Matthew and Mark give us, Matthew and Mark are almost identical in their accounts of this trial. And Matthew and Mark give by far the fullest record of the three. So we're going to tackle Matthew's. um, and, And you can read the same thing in Mark or in Luke. Chapter 26 of Matthew. We'll just read it and I'll pause it once in a while just to highlight a couple of features. Verse 57. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas. Now, verse 56 of Matthew 26, that is in the garden, that is part of the arrest. And so you'll notice that Matthew skips over the trial before Annas. Verse 57, those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officials to see the outcome. And you'll notice that Matthew there and Mark nor Luke mention John getting Peter into the courtyard. But we know from John's gospel how Peter got in. He was with John. But you'll notice that Matthew doesn't mention John being there. John mentions that in his gospel. See how wonderful it is to have four perspectives on all of these events? Because everybody kind of gives us different details. We put them all together and we get a, a very full picture. Verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Now, keep in mind, this is, again, contrary to the procedure. The procedure should have been the witnesses come forward and give testimony. The testimony is examined and then confirmed. Then Jesus is arrested. Then he is put on trial and made to answer the testimony of these witnesses. Once Jesus, By this time, Jesus hasn't even been charged with anything. They're still trying to find a charge against him. That's how corrupt the whole thing was. Even the official trial before Caiaphas was utter corruption. It was completely out of the ordinary of how they would normally conduct themselves. So they go fishing for these false witnesses, seeking to put him to death. Verse 60, they did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward and said, this man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. Now, here's something interesting about that statement. If you were to only read Matthew's gospel, you would have no idea whatsoever what they're referring to there. 
Because Matthew doesn't mention when Jesus originally said that. When did Jesus originally say that? In John chapter 2 when he cleansed the temple. And they came up and asked him for a sign. And he said, this is the sign that will be given to you. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And they said, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? Jesus was speaking of the temple of his body. And John says, after he was resurrected, the disciples understood this and remembered what he had said and believed on him because of it. But if you were just to read Matthew's gospel, you would have no idea what these witnesses were testifying. But they found two probably very unscrupulous characters that they were able to bring into this trial and get to testify that he had made this statement. That's not actually what he had said, but it is a twisting of his words. Verse 62, the high priest stood up and said to him, do you not answer? What is it? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Now, notice that's an entirely different question than whether he threatened to destroy the temple, right? I mean, are these guys fishing or what? They are going after anything that they can. And they will use any excuse they can, which they do in verse 64. Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he's blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They answered, that is, the council, he deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you, Christ, who is the one who hit you? And notice here is more abuse in the trial. They're abusing him in the trial, which is further illegality. Verse 69, Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you're talking about. When he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. A little later the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Verse 27, or sorry, chapter 27. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. And that takes us back to chapter 18 of John, verse 27, where after the trial for Annas, he mentions that he went to Caiaphas. All of that fits in to there. And then after Caiaphas is the official condemnation. So it went trial before Annas. Annas sent him to Caiaphas. Caiaphas had this trial that we just read about here, fishing again for accusations. They finally get something. He confirms that he is the Son of God and that they would see him coming in the clouds of glory. And because of that affirmation, they condemned him as being worthy of death because of the blasphemy. And then chapter 27, verses 1 and 2, is when the council reconvenes, probably after something of a break, during which Peter denied the Lord Jesus two more times while the council was conferring. After that break, the council gathered together and determined to put him to death, said he is worthy of death and gave the official condemnation. All of the beatings that Jesus suffered prior to that were all illegal. Still, in terms of the law, beatings suffered by an innocent, uncondemned man. Because no official condemnation had been made. So that is the second trial, the trial before Caiaphas. Let me close with this. One of the things that I've been thinking about and have been striking me as we've been going through the trials of the Lord Jesus Christ in these chapters is, is this realization. Someday, Annas and Caiaphas will stand before Christ. Right? You realize that? One of these days, 
Annas is going to be resurrected and be put into a glorified body, not glorified body, a body, an eternal body, fit for eternal fire and eternal destruction. And this one who had the audacity to stand before Jesus and make Jesus stand before him and examine him and condemn him and seek to put him to death, that one, Annas, will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And the books will be open. And every deed that he has ever done in darkness and in secret and publicly, and every thought that he had ever thought, and every motive of his heart will be revealed on that day. And it will not be an unjust trial. It will be a just trial. And he will be condemned, and he will be thrown into everlasting torment. Where Annas will sit beside Caiaphas and Judas and the servant who struck him, and everybody else who refuses to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. This will be one of the great ironies and twists of history. That this man who dared to think that Christ should stand before him will stand before that man, and he will know exactly who he is standing before, and he will remember exactly what he did. And he will remember every detail of this evening, and every accusation that he made, and every motive of his heart will be revealed on that day. And he will stand before Jesus, and so will Caiaphas. And those men will be condemned. And that is not just the case for the wicked characters that we see in this unfolding drama of these trials. That will be the case with every single person who refuses to bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and judges Him as being unworthy of their trust and their confidence and their faith and their obedience. That will be the case with all who reject the precious Son of God. We do not put Him on trial. He will put us on trial. And on that day... He will either be our Savior or He will be your judge. If you do not know Christ, know with absolute certainty that you do not judge Him. The only response that is appropriate for you is to bow the knee to Him in grace, recognizing you have violated His law and that you will stand before Him. You will stand before Him either as your Savior or as your judge. So I beseech you on behalf of Christ, if you do not know Him, turn to Him in repentance and faith and place your faith in Lord Jesus Christ. And receive His gift of mercy and grace to you. For if you do not, you will stand before Him and you will be judged. And it will be a just trial. And all the books will be opened. And you will receive the just condemnation which you deserve for your sin and your rebellion against Him. May that never be the case of anybody who sits here on a Sunday morning. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, Your Word is pierces to our, our very heart and contains so many ironies and so many things that we can learn from. We are so grateful for the fact that You give us Your Word and You have revealed all that Christ has endured on our behalf. We thank You for the fact that He is righteous and fully so. We thank You for the fact that He stood before unjust judges and was condemned and that His condemnation led to His death. His death led to His resurrection. And all of this was on behalf of those who have been atoned for and have had their sins forgiven through His grace. Thank You for that. And as we see what Christ endured the beatings and the shame and the public humiliation, all of it was endured on behalf of those who have trusted in Him. And we thank You for that grace. And we thank You that He stood in our stead and endured all of this for those who love Him and have obeyed Him. And we pray that if there are any here who do not know Christ the Savior, that they would come to understand Your law and Your righteousness, that they are sinners in need of grace and deserving of judgment. And unless they repent and turn, they will likewise perish alongside Annas and Caiaphas and all who reject you in your gracious offer of salvation. Be honored and glorified by drawing many to your, to your Son and to, to you by your grace. We pray that you may be glorified in us and give us hearts of obedience as we seek to live for you and love you in this week to come. In Christ's name, amen. 
Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.